Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by Gray Wolf Press, publisher of Barn 8, the new novel by Deb Olin Unferth. Barn 8 is uh, Vegan's Ocean 11. It stars a million chickens. It's about a group of washed-up radicals trying to find redemption by attempting the most ambitious heist in animal liberation history. This is a wry and brilliant novel, painstakingly researched and daringly imaginative. It covers chicken intelligence, bird evolution, factory farm conditions, and so much more. Warning, it might make you a vegan. Barn 8, the new novel by Deb Olin Unferth, available now from Grey Wolf Press. Hello. How's it going? What's up? This is the Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. It's good to be with you, talking to you. I'm in Los Angeles. I hope you're doing okay. I know these are strange times. I know things were weird. And dystopian, and they've gotten a lot weirder and a lot more dystopian in short order. It's happened fast. I don't think some people uh, get it still. I think some people are still in, de uh, in denial. I think some people are in shock. I think some people are just selfish and they don't want to be inconvenienced. I think some people are uh, hypochondriacs and are probably freaking out right now. But whatever the case, it's strange to uh, have basically the country on lockdown, schools closed, restaurants closed. This is uh, the coronavirus pandemic of 2020. Seems like a, like a once in a century thing. If we're using historical precedent, the Spanish flu of 1918, the last thing that really uh, compares in terms of this kind of global reach. I mean, I guess you have uh, HIV and AIDS, but as far as like flu viruses go, the Spanish flu of 1918, it's about a hundred years ago, right? So, and I know with climate change, these things are probably going to start happening more frequently. It's crazy. That said, I hope you're uh, staying safe. I hope you're staying sane. Take care of your friends and neighbors. And and you know what? I should say as like a public service announcement, stay inside. Like, do, like really don't mix with people. Don't be that person. You could get somebody sick and, and uh, they could die. I keep having this conversation with people. <laughs> like, I don't want to be a scold and I don't want to be paranoid, but it just seems obvious. Like, yeah, you're probably going to be fine. You're young and healthy. But like, if you pick this thing up, 
you might not even know you have it for two weeks. You're walking around, you get old people sick, they die. Don't do that. Sam Faramond is my guest. He's got a debut novel out called Camaro on Dr. Dr. Press. It was nice to meet him. It'll be nice to introduce him to you in just a moment. I do have some mail to get to. A listener named Casey writes, Dear Brad, I didn't write this email right away because I thought maybe I was overreacting, but it keeps bugging me. A listener wrote in to take a weird, self-important jab at Emily Nemens, and you chose not only to read it in episode 629, but to broadcast this person's Twitter handle. I say weird because it was a criticism based not on any specific content of Nemens's interview, not on any remark or opinion, but based on, I guess, unlikability. It was just a straight put down. The whole thing, you reading it, then legitimizing it by saying you disagree because whatever lacklusterness must be the interviewer's fault, the whole thing was very conservative talk radio. Like, if I were Emily Nemens and I heard that, I'd be at the very least bewildered, if not pissed. Surely you do not read every email you get. Why did you give time on your show to this person? Did you feel like it needed to be said? Did you read for the shock value? Was it a mistake? I'm not trying to attack you. I'm just truly confused, especially on the re-listen. You are in control of the tone of your show. If you felt like it needed addressing, you could have summarized it and any other occasional crappy insult mail you get and said, like, I'm not providing a platform for that. If a listener writes in with legitimate critique or even crappy critique that you can address in a constructive way, then by all means it should be read. And you've done that plenty. You're usually on the right track. Otherwise, I'm grateful for the work that you do interviewing, and I value the space you provide for writers in all stages of their careers. Thank you, and keep fighting the good media fight. Signed, Casey. So thank you for writing, Casey. I think this is a good critique. This is precisely the kind of good critique that I think you're probably advocating for. If I'm being honest, first of all, uh, I got the message via Twitter. It was passed along to me. Like, I'm not on Twitter, but if people write to me, as they sometimes do, uh, via direct message, then it will get passed to me. So that is why I uh, broadcast the person's Twitter handle. It's because they DM'd me. And then, uh, as far as, you know, uh, the, the fact that it was just a, a straight put down, which it kind of was, I think you're correct. Uh, you know, in that, uh, assessment, there's no doubt it was, it was kind of a nasty message and just a, a dark take, which I disagreed with strenuously in the episode. Um, I think, I think, yeah, I think I made a mistake. I got a cop to it. I think if I'm being honest and really I'm searching my mind to try to remember what I was, what I was doing when I was producing the episode is I was trying to create an interesting listen for people. And I, to be honest, I get a lot of uh, emails and most of them are really nice. And I appreciate that. Uh, A lot of them say really nice things about the show. If I'm being honest And I don't read a lot of them on air because I would sound like a jackass if that's all I read. And I think I may be oversensitive to that. Like there's some sort of, uh, there's a part of me that's like, oh God, nobody wants to hear me read, you know, nice emails where people say nice things about my show. And so sometimes when I get uh, like, you know, more negative takes, I think, 
I might be uh, like dispositionally inclined to uh, pay attention to them or to want to respond to them or to include them just so that there's some balance. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think that was kind of the impulse that it came from. And I thought too, because I had people writing me telling me that the Emily Nemens episode was one of the best that they had heard in a long time. I thought, you know, at the time I was, I was thinking like, oh wow, if I put these two next to each other, it will generate interest and drive people to her episode and hopefully get people interested in her book and so on. Do you see what I'm saying? Like that was my logic, but I think, I think the, you know, the critique that you make about not having, uh, or including just straight put downs in the male portion of the, uh, show is, is correct. I think I fucked it up. And so I'm sorry to, uh, Emily and to you, I'm sorry uh, if anybody out there was like, man, that's a bummer. Um, that said, if people put me down, I will read them. <laughs> Uh, but I should do a better job of protecting my guests. If there's something legitimate that people have a problem with or something more substantive with a guest on the show, then fine. Um, you know, as far as like it being like conservative talk radio, I got to be honest, I don't listen to it. I haven't listened to it in a long time. I, I have heard some like Hannity and Rush Limbaugh, you know, just out of like curiosity, but I'm I'm not familiar with that. You know, I'm also, I think, just really sensitive to wanting to make sure I'm not boring, especially in the monologue. Like, the interviews are always fine. I love the interviews because it's not just me. It's I'm talking to somebody. It's, you know, it's interesting to me. In the monologue, I've always been a little bit more sensitive, and I just want to make sure people aren't bored. So thank you, Casey, for writing with such a thoughtful, uh, you know, in such a thoughtful way and for listening. I appreciate it. And uh, I will take it to heart. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. I don't think there is. I think we should just get to Sam Faramond. His uh, debut novel is called Camaro, available from Dr. Dr. Press. So uh, here he is. This is Sam Faramond. Oh, wait, you know what? I forgot something, and it's very important. I forgot to mention that the Other People podcast now has an Instagram page or an Instagram account. You know what I mean? It's got an Instagram. My social media director, Joseph Grantham, has opened an Other People Instagram. If you want to follow other people on Instagram, the uh, Instagram handle is, uh, I believe, otherppl.podcast. Otherppl.podcast on Instagram, okay? So, all right, that's it. Now let's get to uh, Sam Faramond and his new novel again is called Camaro. I mean, it still has that feeling of an entertainment industry the way Los Angeles does, but it just feels a little more manageable. I've had people tell me that Nashville is nice. Yeah. Like people are nice or nicer than they are here. Yeah, yeah. it, It definitely is like that feeling of the South where there is that kind of niceness, um, I don't get as much of the the feeling of people asking you, well, what are you working on, or just trying to schmooze the way I assume still happens in Los Angeles. I think so. I'm yeah. hiding in here, so I try to stay away from it. What does uh, what do you do for the Country Music Hall of Fame? I work as a producer, uh, um, mostly video, so uh, a lot of uh, editing, but also 
uh, interviewing of artists, of writers, and um, turning that into video series, different different forms of content that they like they they put out on their own channel. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. who have you interviewed? I'm curious. Uh, so where where I started with the museum was actually um on the first floor of the museum there's this incredibly old letterpress print shop. Are you familiar with letterpress? A little bit. All? A yeah. little bit. Yeah, I used to have business cards that were made on an old-fashioned letterpress, but yeah. it was they were made by a guy who works in like farmers markets in like New York, uh, yeah. New York City. Have you seen this guy by any chance? No. I mean, you used to live in New York, right? I did, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But uh, a buddy of mine who lived in New York was like, check these out. And he just would collect old cereal boxes. And then he would print the business cards on like the grayed out inner, oh, yeah. inner box. Yeah. And then like the back would be glossy with like frosted flakes. Yeah. I thought it was cool when I was like 24. Yeah. Um, 24. Well, I think it still is pretty cool. I mean, in the past, I'd say 20 or so years, it feels like letterpress has become kind of hip like it's uh um making a comeback but of course you go further back and with like the onset of like offset printing and then digital printing it lost steam but um yeah this this letterpress print shop is 140 years old it's a part of the like the country music foundation now so that's where i started um kind of uh working mostly uh in like the education department within the museum so a lot of uh the people i interviewed to to start were all these old school printers um and there is this kind of connection between the print shop and country music because they were making all these show posters so you go back to like the 40s and 50s uh, they were printing posters for like Hank Williams. They were printing posters for even like Elvis Presley. Um, just this range of country music and also rock and roll. And a lot of the people I interviewed were these printers that got into letterpress just because it was that, that occupation. It was the way of printing all sorts of materials, not just business cards. Like this was the only way of uh, reproducing the printed word. Uh, so starting off there, um, I then moved up to the hall of fame proper and now kind of, uh, I still feel like I'm, um, like breaking my way in. Uh, I haven't interviewed any of the heavy hitters yet, like Reba or Garth Brooks. Or, but I, I should say but, for people listening that Sam is dressed in full cowboy regalia. Yeah. He's got a, a large uh, 10 gallon cowboy hat on. What is that? A, like a rawhide vest you're wearing? It is. I mean, I did take off my spurs before I came in <laughs> because I was worried about setting off. You, any, fu- you yeah. fully embrace this lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, and do you like Nashville like as a city? I do. Um, it definitely is uh, a little slower paced. Uh, I mean, i Grew up in Los Angeles. I lived in New York. Um, went to school in the Bay Area, uh, but it's a welcome change. Um, I find that I just have a little more, a little more quiet, a little more time to to think there. But it still has all of the 
all the best parts of a city. I mean, it still feels like a city there. And, and like, do you go out and like listen to country music? Do you listen to country music at home or is it just like a work thing? Uh, it's primarily a work thing, but I feel like you, you kind of, uh, you can't avoid it there. Yeah. Uh, like I, that's, I guess that's what I'm driving at. Is yeah. that like, it's such a part of the culture there, like such a part of the city's fabric that you almost have to sort of get into it. I, I had yeah. buddies that went to school in Nashville back when I was in college and I went and visited them and they were like fully into bluegrass and we right. went to like bluegrass bars and, yeah. and it was fun. Yeah. I mean, when you're there, you sort of get swept up in it. It's like when you're in New Orleans and you're listening to jazz or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think you can kind of go into any bar or honky tonk and you'll, you'll see very good musicians, a lot of session musicians, just working musicians. So I think approaching it from a craft standpoint, you have to be impressed Right. Yeah. Yeah. They're amazing. Yeah. I don't like anybody who can play an instrument proficiently is amazing to me. Yeah. Especially the mandolin. Like it's so small. Yeah. How do you deal with something that small? Yeah. And it feels like you have to be moving like at rapid speed. You know? Yeah. I don't even know how to talk about playing an instrument, but it's impressive to me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm the same way. I think, uh, just the amount of dedication, like the technical proficiency. So you don't play incredible. anything. I I grew up playing like guitar and bass, and I got good enough to realize how bad I was, and kind of stopped for for everyone's sake, uh, primarily for my sake, because <laughs> I just realized I had limitations. I wasn't able to get it. I don't know, but um, it's good to know. You have to know if, you, yeah. if it's not working out. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, but even Pete, you know, anybody, I guess you have a natural proclivity and then you also have the kind of obsessive personality or the obsessive love of it. It's the only way to get really, really good. Right. Like people who get really good on an instrument, you know, it's like the kind of person who never puts the guitar down. Yeah. They sort of like carry it with them everywhere. Yeah. And they're con they practice like four hours a day. That's what I mean from what I've read and like rock biographies and stuff. It's, yeah. it's almost always that. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think it's. I mean, it's the same with any art form or whatever it might be, uh, even like playing basketball, like just always having a basketball on your person. Like it's podcasting, yeah. always carrying your microphone, no matter where you are. Yeah. It, it was weird. I, I saw you come out of the door and you were still holding the microphone I, and you had the headphones. On. I sleep with it yeah. and just the cords just dangling off my, my, my headphones, just I walking mean, around town. I took my cowboy hat off <laughs> and took your headphones off. That's how I yeah. greet people. <laughs> Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, 
a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Um, so there you are in Nashville, you're working at the country music hall of fame and you're, uh, literary. Is yeah. there a community there for book people? I know like Jack White sort of has his own little press and, yeah. um, you know, I'm sure there are people here and there. It's kind of like, it's kind of like anybody anywhere, but New York city where you can't like walk out your door without running into somebody who's right. got a, a novel in the drawer. But in LA, if you stick around and you go to enough events, you sort of start to know the the community is, right. it, is it similar in nashville i think so yeah yeah um i mean i so i left los angeles before i was even getting into writing so i never understood that there was a writing community here that you could seek out um it feels similar uh nashville and los angeles um there is like a mfa program there over at vanderbilt there's um writing workshops there's i think a lot of writers and good bookstores that also put on readings um i i think i've kind of gotten to a place where i just don't go to as many readings as i used to when i was in new york maybe i was just going so often that i kind of got tired of it uh, you know it, it, it I guess I, like I've, I've sort of uh, bagged on readings in on the in the past on this show. They they can be fine. They yeah. can be excellent. Actually, yeah. it sort of depends on the the person reading and the mood that you're in and the event. But um, you know, it's I don't know if I could do it every day. Yeah. Or even like every week. I think it's good to just hit one every once in a while. Yeah, yeah. It, it's definitely good to to be engaged and to be reminded of what they're like and to talk to people. Um, but I think you're right that there's just such a wide range of how they can go that it's really a social outing. I mean, yeah. I think too, like it's usually writerly people who show up most often at these things because they know other writers and you sort of feel like oh, I got to go support, right. um, which is the right thing to do. And then you, the reading ends and you sort of get to mill around and talk to other people who inevitably right. are like, Oh, I'm working on a book. And that's how you sort of get to know people. Yeah. But what I've been thinking, and I always have these ideas that I don't act on, which is probably not great, but I was thinking like I should get a bowling league started. Yeah. Just cut the reading out of it and just let people hang out and like drink beer and bowl. Yeah. And I I tweeted about it and like it got some love. I think some people were like, "Oh yeah, I'll yeah. do that." But I haven't motivated. Yeah, uh I mean, I don't know that many people who bowl, but But anybody can bowl. That's yeah. the whole point. You don't yeah. even have to be able to bowl. Right. And it is that social aspect. That's it. Isn't it? That's, that's it. I think maybe like if I could do, I think you got to be realistic. I'm thinking like one Sunday evening per month and you just have a group and it's like on an email blast and you just try to get RSVPs like a week out, try to get an even number right. of people 
Like, I don't know if you can do a league. Like, I'm not going to make shirts. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask. No, like, I mean, maybe no not shirts. Maybe eventually yeah. we'll build up to shirts, <laughs> but it's just like, I just know people, especially in LA. I don't know if it's the same way in other places. Like maybe you can speak to this with, with regard to Nashville, but getting anybody anywhere to do anything socially in Los Angeles is just a logistical nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, fortunately Nashville is a little bit smaller, so it's not as much of a drive to to see people. Yeah, to, it's like not like a, bowling. a I don't traffic know if any nightmare. bowling alleys in Nashville. I don't know if we need like multiple bowling leagues going. <laughs> a uh, network of yeah. leagues. We could have like then we can have like a national championship. Right. <laughs> and then of course like if you're traveling, you've got your own little chapter that you can check in. I think maybe this is the start of something. This is. We could yeah. build. I could build this into a beast. But it's one of those things. Like I think it, what I, like the, the the larger point is that I do think there is a need for more community, right? And community building. And so maybe I will. Maybe today I will send out an email blast. Maybe this is inspiring me to actually take action and leap. But then, I mean, I, if anything, you got to put a pin in it, right? Well, well, I think like I think you need to have enough people involved that like lots of people can flake right like flaking has to be built in right and then if it's just like you know if eight people show up then you have like four versus four and that's how it goes yeah that is another thing with community <laughs> it's that that percentages you know most of the people aren't going to show up so right if that's built in and if people's expectations are it's okay not to show up. Yeah. I think you'll That's get a you, better turnout. I don't want people to feel like, oh, fuck, the bowling. I want people to be like, oh, that sounds good yeah. this weekend. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, you can bowl on your free time as well. It's not like you're going to have to practice for this. No. It's, it's just there. You can suck at bowling. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. I, that's why I like bowling. I think it's just sort of a, it's a universal shared experience that we can all enjoy. Right. And I mean, even when it's televised, like even the, the best bowlers, there still is that kind of absurdity to the sport. It's where... yeah. Yeah. There's something beautiful about it. And it like, it lends itself well to talking mm -hmm. like you can, you know, in between you sort of chat and there's alcohol. You can yeah. drink, <laughs> you can drink while you do it. Not many sports can say that. Yeah. And, uh, I know a great bowling alley like that, uh, over in Koreatown. Uh-huh. I'm like, that would be sort of centrally located. Maybe we could move the lane. You know, we could, we could rotate it. We could like yeah. one, you know, one Sunday you do it here and the next Sunday it's out in the Valley or. I like that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm thinking that it's, it's also kind of nostalgic bowling, like both culturally, like it feels like something that, uh, of course everyone's been bowling. You know, but it's primarily as a child that you go bowling. Right. But then it also just feels like something from the 50s or 60s. Like, it probably was much more popular in the past, so it, it just feels like you're being transported to... When you're in the bowling alley, yeah, it's very, very much that way. Yeah. That's what I found. I took my kids not too long ago. And yeah. Like, uh, there's a video arcade. You can get a beer. Yeah. You know, it just feels like something out of the the past it's something for everybody too like arcade beer for the whole family people can come uh stoned it's so you yeah. can bring your vape pen you know in los angeles so yeah 
I don't know. I think there's some promise here. Maybe you could open up a chapter in Nashville. Yeah. Try to like maybe get writers to meet country music stars. Yeah. Could be a mixer. (laughs) (laughs) There's definitely something here. So, uh, okay. Let's talk about your childhood in, uh, what was it? Woodland Hills out in the Valley? Yeah. Yeah. West Valley. Okay. So what was that like? It's hot in Woodland Hills. It's the hottest place in Los Angeles. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, I mean, it's just a lot of bowling. That's that's my childhood. Uh, <laughs> just nothing but. Uh, I mean, to get out of the heat, you got to get on the lanes. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, uh, childhood, uh, West Valley, I think uh, the heat definitely. Uh, grew up, had a swimming pool in our backyard for the first 10 or so years of my life. So I think I, I grew up in a swimming pool. Yeah. Um, that was the only way to survive. Uh, but outside of that, um, yeah, uh, middle school, high school, uh, a lot of, a lot of the friends I, I made in middle school and high school are still kind of in my life today. Um, partly because I'm visiting Los Angeles and a lot of them are still here. Right. But, um, I think a lot of them had the same interests intellectually. Um, where'd you go to high school? Like out, out there in the, in Woodland Hills? In, yeah. Woodland Hills, uh, El Camino Real high school. Um, pretty big high school. So of course was able to find like a circle of, of friends who were interested in having like book clubs or whatever, whatever sort of clubs we could get away with philosophy club, film club, those kinds of things. In high school? Yeah. You were making a philosophy club? Yeah. Damn. Yeah. It was, uh, it's high minded. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, something to do during lunch. I okay. don't know how much I took away from it, but what were you reading? Were you guys like talking about like Nietzsche at lunch in high school? Yeah. Yeah. It was, I mean, uh, now my, my recall is going to be terrible, but I mean, a lot of the, the heavy hitters, um, I think there was a lot of, uh, that kind of creative energy, but at an age where you don't know how to channel it. So it was just, oh, we should have a book club. We should be reading. We should be engaging in some way that, uh, might not have been happening when you're forced to, to read something for the curriculum. Who are you? Like, did you have a favorite philosopher? Uh, honestly, I skipped a couple of those philosophy club meetings. <laughs> <laughs> I've been like, I dip into it every once in a while. Like I find Schopenhauer sort of grumpy in a good way. Yeah. Like super dark, but also yeah. like fairly compelling. Yeah. I think for me, a lot of it is kind of coming in through language a lot. Like that's always going to be appealing to me. So like, um, uh, like deconstruction and Derrida and like that vein is like, I'm always going to latch onto that because when it gets a little too heady, I just kind of, but isn't that heady? I guess so. But I think it's just being able to hold on to the words or symbols and signs and that at least makes some sense to me. Right. Um, I can point to something and feel like, okay, this, this has some sort of structure that 
I can at least wrestle with or like, yeah, if it gets too abstract, I never trust any, like sometimes philosophy reads really abstractly to me and I just put it down. Cause I'm like, okay, if this person can't say whatever brilliant thing they're trying to say in a way that I can understand, right. then I don't trust it. It, it feels like, um, a lot of philosophers might just be bad writers, right? Like, yeah, I think a good writer can get at the same exact, whatever, abstract philosophy um just with a good line and just make it clear just yeah. make it so like you know uh, a moron like me can understand it that's what i that's what i need uh but it sounds like you were kind of a bookish uh, smart good student kind of kid yeah i i don't think i did too well in classes but i was just interested in reading and i was um i think i was engaging with it more outside of class so I didn't necessarily get the best grades, but, um, was able to get by. And, uh, I think I was just always reluctant to, to read what I was told to read. Yeah. I'm the just, same way. I don't want, don't tell me what to read. Yeah. That drives me crazy. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I, th I think I was just reading on my own, finding my own way. And, yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, what about your folks? You have like a uh, writerly parents or anything like that or? Uh, not particularly. Um, so my, my parents, uh, were born in Iran. Um, they like during the revolution and after the revolution, they ended up moving to Germany. Um, my older brother was born in Germany and, uh, they then moved to Los Angeles uh, and I was born in LA and, um, and, and people listening who don't have familiarity with Los Angeles should know there's a huge yeah. Iranian population yeah. in Los Angeles. Yeah. I think it's, um, one of the largest populations of Iranians outside of Iran. Well, it's called Tarangelis. Yeah. 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 There's uh, even a name for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, don't quote me on that, but. If it's not the largest, at least it attests to the fact that Iranians have a tendency to exaggerate. So it's definitely <laughs> the largest right. population. But, um, yeah, so uh, I think, you know, they there was like this um, interest in language for me because they were always speaking Farsi at home. So I was uh, growing up speaking Farsi and English and kind of, uh, trying to make that connection with them. Um, I think that, but, but obviously of, they learned English. Yeah. 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 Um, and I think, yeah, that, um, not a disconnect, but that, uh, kind of, uh, wrestling with language from an early age, I think, kind of set the tone um because that's something i still think about a lot as far as identity is concerned um uh deconstructing the language that i would have grown up with like communicating with my parents not necessarily knowing if we're meaning the same thing um i wasn't thinking this as a child um i wasn't even thinking this in philosophy club i should have probably <laughs> mentioned it <laughs> but um i think the interest in language and reading probably stemmed from that. Um, and my mother, uh, worked as like a library aide for most of, uh, our time here. So going to the library, 
reading a lot. Like that's definitely something that my folks encouraged. Um, and I mean, I don't know how good they feel about it now because I pursued writing, <laughs> right. but uh, Oh shit. Yeah. What have we done? If, if anything, they should have told me not to read as much and <laughs> focus on something else. But yeah, I think from that early age, it definitely was, uh, encouraged. Well, you know, and I think like it's not uncommon based on conversations I've had with friends over the years or for, with people on this show, uh, in particular for like first generation Americans where you have parents in the house speaking, um, the language of like the motherland. Yeah. And then a lot of times the kids, uh, will listen to them in like Farsi or whatever, but then respond in English. Yeah. Is it like that in your household? Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, it, it is interesting. Uh, what kind of effect that would have on the way you think about language, just, uh, kind of being able to synthesize, uh, different meanings. And I mean, uh, even like translating, like there just aren't words for, uh, words in English for words in Farsi and vice versa. So thinking about that has got to have a profound effect on a lot of writers that grew up in those situations. Well, and I think too, uh, I talked about this not too long ago with somebody, but in, in, when it comes to building an identity for yourself or expressing who you are, you know, a limit on language really flattens out like your experience of the world. Right. Um, like I felt that just being like mostly monolingual Mm-hmm. and being places where I could, you know, I can kind of get by, but I'm not able to fully express myself. Right. Like that frustration, uh, is enormous in me. Like as somebody who likes to talk to people, but, I hate not being able to like, yeah, communicate. Yeah. yeah. But then, I mean, it does, uh, it does really help you appreciate what you're able to do when you are expressing yourself. Like, yeah, I mean, I've, traveled a little bit like being in mexico i can't speak spanish that well but just that you know that feeling of something being on the tip of your tongue and wanting to express it and not being able to like it just uh and then you start speaking english with a spanish accent yeah like maybe that's gonna help yeah You're like, what am you i doing speaking slower like, <laughs> <laughs> like making hand gestures i yeah. mean you try everything you you know you gotta you gotta pull out all the stops when you're trying to get through to somebody but yeah um, it's a regret of mine. I'm, I'm going to try to fix it at some point, get fluent in some other language. Um, so what about dad? What about your dad? What did he do? Yeah. Uh, so he, uh, worked construction a lot, had a construction company eventually and a real estate company. Um, like building houses and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Started off like building houses and then got into like buying and selling houses. Um, my old landlord was Iranian and he owned yeah. over a hundred properties in los angeles uh, is that your dad that's not my dad <laughs> i think i was like damn th- i mean the guy had an empire yeah. but he used to always say he was really funny he used to always say like it's not for me he's like if my kids it's for my kids like you know because yeah. you get they had to pay them all off right so we'd have renters but he's like they're all going to come due once those mortgages get paid right and then it's just cash flow yeah that's pretty awesome but whatever he, happened to that guy i don't know kids. he knocked down the house that i used to live in and he's building like a giant house on it Huh. on the property. Like it's not like a big piece of property, but that's yeah. the way of things in Los Angeles. Is right. People will raise these older houses and just build up because yeah. you can't build out because the, the 
the lot isn't big enough. Right. So those boxy kind of yeah. like, you know, two story houses. Yeah. Same thing's happening in Nashville. It's like, I forget what they're called. Just those tall and thin houses. Really? Yeah. Like boxes like out here. Yeah. To, to some extent, not as severely, but by the um, way, this is a very sophisticated architectural discussion. Boxy houses. Yeah. <laughs> is it, that's the official term. <laughs> they're box shaped. They are uh, though. Yeah. There's like not, I mean, there's like, uh, I don't even know, like, like modern, is that what you call it? I don't know enough about yeah. you know, design, but there's no like eaves. There's this no, is, someday we're going to get a little more fluent in architectural speak. Yeah, here we go. This is the, <laughs> this is an illustration of not having the language to properly uh, communicate. Illustration or blueprint. I think blueprint is the, the term. Okay. Architecture. Um, so yeah, so your dad's like a realtor and a contractor and a builder. Yeah. All yeah. right. And, um, that, I mean, grew up seeing some of that, but did not end up, uh, becoming skilled in that vein. So wait, like you never know, like no summer jobs or anything, uh, to some extent, but I just, uh, like playing the guitar. It just didn't happen for me. Um, I fucking suck with tools. Yeah. I can't fix a damn thing. That's, I can hang a picture. I regrets. Yeah. I feel, I feel, I got to say it's a little bit, uh, emasculating, especially when I'm around like a guy who's like, oh, I can, yeah. I can, uh, I can rewire that ceiling fan. Right. I'm yeah. Like, oh shit. I'm glad that we're able to go through all of our inadequacies. In <laughs> That's this what this show's about. It's a, we just come in here and just tick them off. You know? <laughs> uh, but no, it's like, I, it, again, I think these things are largely taught. You really have no excuse because your dad right. knows how to do this stuff. Yeah. You should have learned. My dad couldn't fix shit either. So it just passed down to me. Come from a long line of people. (laughs) Just inept (laughs) men. Just can't do anything with their hands. It's amazing you're here. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But you didn't do that. You didn't like work on the construction lot. I think uh, it's also that mentality of, well, he was doing that so I wouldn't have to. Right. Which I'm, of course, incredibly grateful for. And it worked, uh, but it would have been nice to have picked up some of those skills. Yeah, just yeah. like basic how-to stuff. Yeah, like hanging up a picture. I can do that. There yeah. are YouTube videos, I should say, okay. for simple household like fixes okay. that are I can understand them. <laughs> I recommend that. <laughs> uh, and then you had a brother, you said. Yeah. So yeah. just the two of you? Yeah. And he's, he's older. Yeah. He's a couple of years older than me. What's yeah. he up to? Uh, I don't quite understand it cause it's a technological thing. Oh. Um, but he does like, um, uh, product design and, um, like user interface, uh, kind of UX. Is that what they call it? Yeah. Like that kind of testing. And, um, he's, I mean, he has a incredible mind for that kind of thing that I can't put into words. Right. Um, but he works, uh, with this, uh, it's like a education app company that, um, is doing a lot of good work. And I think, uh, what he does is like, he does a little bit of everything, like being able to understand like the coding side of things, but also being able to understand the way people interact with a website or with an app, um, being able to, uh, kind of translate data into how 
a product should be developed or uh, designed or worked on. Yeah, it's a, that's like a big thought project. There's a lot that goes into that. Yeah. I was reading about, uh, or I was talking to Jarrett Kobach on this show, and he used to live up in San Francisco and worked in tech for a long time. And like something that he brings up in his books and, um, you know, I think brought up in the conversation, if I'm recalling it correctly, is this idea that like a lot of the most popular tech companies that we know, you know, their products and their apps and their user experiences were designed largely by dudes. Okay. So like Instagram, when it sold was like, I want to say like 15 employees Right. Mostly dudes. Right. And I'm like, you know, I never really put much thought into that, but if it's just all guys or mostly guys designing basically the virtual worlds that we all spend like an inordinate, you know, inordinate amount of our days, um, you know, milling around in, that's going to have an impact. Yeah. There's going to be like blind, like, you know, gender related blind spots as to how those experiences unfold or could be exploited or. I don't know. It's just like a rabbit hole to go down, but it, yeah. I, I hadn't really thought about any of that. I think until I read Jarrett's book and talked to him and then I think I maybe stumbled into another article about that sort of thing online, but it's crazy to think about. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that I guess also goes back to just, uh, thinking of like the male gaze, especially with art and painting and everything. It's fascinating to think that it just moved over to this other field and also thinking about the the impact that has had even politically well that's what i mean yeah i mean look at facebook it's It's all i think it's all uh it's like it's like the genie's out of the bottle and i just think that the the power of these of certain um you know sites and products or whatever is sort of gotten to a scale that is unmanageable i don't even think that people who founded it could have predicted yeah or maybe the, in their wildest dreams they did but it's just uh it's like how do you how do you wrangle this thing now yeah and it seems like a lot of uh people in that field uh are just so specialized in whatever it is they do so they don't have as much of a well-rounded education like they weren't going to philosophy club they yeah. probably should have been. They should have been. <laughs> they needed a, a couple more tools, you know, to be able to uh, think about the effect of an infinite scroll, like what what that would result in. Um, I think a lot of it is just, oh, this is something we can do. <laughs> cool. Instead of, <laughs> you know, well, what's going to happen with it? Yeah. Should we do this? Well, no, that's a, that's the thing. You talk about, like, big thought projects. Um you know, so much of it is, is like imagining the future and imagining possible permutations and how is the user going to sit at home and use this or are they going to sit? Will they be walking? And like, you know, it's like you really have to have an imagination. Right. And I mean, once again, to bring up my inadequacies and to praise my brother, um, he also, uh, studied philosophy in addition to, uh, his engineering degree. And I think that's, I mean, on one hand, maybe that's why he's involved in an education app instead of something else. But uh, having that kind of well-roundedness, um, it's not that common anymore. No, I don't. Think. I, I, no, I couldn't yeah. agree. I, I I couldn't agree more that it is important for 
people to get some kind of liberal arts education. Right. You know, I think increasingly it's sort of being shunted to the side or diminished because it's all about like, you know, know your, what's the acronym? I forget what they call it. My kids in my kids' schools, but it's like science, math, tech. Oh, uh, STEM. STEM. Yeah. yeah. That's what it is. And so it's like, great. I'm, I'm all for STEM. Right. But I think it's also important for people to learn how to read. Yeah. Um, and to, um, empathize yeah yeah especially with i guess with identity being able to kind of look at yourself and know yourself because so much of stem feels like it's um projecting outward thinking about things around you rather than looking inward and uh that I mean, looking inward is how you can solve a lot of problems outside of you. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, I think like sometimes in the absence of, and I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of like, uh, I don't know, I'm not talking out of turn, but I'm just, it's, it's a little bit of a speculation, but it seems to me that in the absence of liberal arts education or exposure to things like philosophy or literature, if you go into say the sciences and or let's say you get like really good at coding, mm-hmm. but you might have these other blind spots or insensitivities or, and especially if you're like somebody who's very inward and introverted and you're right. not super social, you know, but you're very good at this one thing. It could easily be perverted by your employer or you could wind up like designing weapons or coding right. for people. To, you know, like I think there needs to be some more symbiosis, just like with your brother. Right. Um, having like, uh, you know, if we had more people at Facebook, uh, especially in its inception that had a little bit more, um, depth and sensitivity, we might not, the site might not be such a shit show. Yeah. And I mean, you see, I think in a lot of offices for tech companies, there are those kind of like communal spaces, but it's, I don't know how much, uh, socializing, actually happens like well i I mean i I, this is like this opens up another can of worms because uh like the whole it's like the steve jobsian philosophy of office culture right where there's supposed to be these like serendipitous interactions between people from disparate departments in the company right so he's like we have to have an open floor plan we have to have no hierarchy like i'm all for no hierarchy but i cannot stand working in a space where everybody's on top of one another. Right. Nobody can fucking concentrate. Yeah. Like, I guess it depends. Like if you're working on something that's genuinely collaborative and you need to all be in the same space. Great. But if you're trying to do something that requires depth of thought and concentration yeah. and you're sitting at some picnic table type thing in the middle of some giant room and there's people yammering all around you, like how are you supposed to get anything done? Yeah. And that doesn't make any sense to me. I'm like totally anti that. Like it's like have a ping pong room, you know, yeah. like have some kombucha on tap or whatever, but like, give me an office and let me shut the door. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, definitely that being able to switch modes from that individual space going to, you know, being able to get somewhere where you're deep in thought and then come out of that and collaborate. Right. I mean, that's very valuable i think that's something a lot of uh writers understand like 
you need to be alone, but you also need to be social. <laughs> the social part can be hard. Yeah. Um, well, that's where the bowling comes in. That's where that's, the bowling. The bowling yeah. league is going to. It's going to be a uh, a solution for thousands of riders. I think it's going to solve everything <laughs> in this country. We got to get the ping pong tables out of those rooms. Get put, a bowling lane. Put, in there. Yeah, put a bowling lane in. By the way, did you ever hear uh, you know hear of or read that book, Bowling Alone? It might be <laughs> a little bit before your time, but I want to say it was like a, a book of like social criticism that came out in the late 80s or early 90s, or maybe it was like right as the internet was sort of coming online. Anyway, I'd have to look at the pub date. I'm not 100% certain, but it was a while back. And I think turned out to be, in many ways, very predictive. Hmm. Um, I think there's too much isolation, not only in like writerly communities, but I think too much isolation among people generally. And I don't think it was always this way. Hmm. I think that it's intensified a lot over my lifetime, partly as a function of age, but also as a function of culture and the way we sort of organize ourselves. Um, and I think that it's at the root of a lot of, uh, what ails us. Yeah. I don't think we're, I don't think we're biologically wired to exist in little pockets of isolation or to be yeah. staring into our phones all day and like experiencing social life through a phone screen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, probably been said way too many times but um like when i arrived on the saturday night uh, i got off the plane and i'm on the bus to go get a rental car and everybody's looking at their phones immediately it feels like uh they haven't even landed somewhere else it's like they were just always on their phone and it, it, i mean everybody complains about this. So I don't know. Keep complaining though. I think like, you know, like I try to, when I'm in situations where I'm in close quarters with people, I try to put my phone away. Yeah. Increasingly, not always. Yeah. Um, just to see if I can get anybody to talk to me. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, sometimes they do. It yeah. depends on my mood. Sometimes I don't feel like you talking. You have to start a whole podcast just to get people to actually talk. Well, I, that's what I mean. I can't say it enough. Part of the reason why I keep doing this is because it's the only time I can ever have an extended conversation with a, um, another, uh, adult, intelligent people come over, sit down across from me and we put our phones away. Yeah. And it's, uh, I find it like, uh, really enjoyable what um what do you think the feeling is for the listener because it's got to be similar to having a conversation like yeah i feel like it's i mean i i will argue that a good interview format show in particular where it's one to one or you know occasionally like two people you know talking to the the host or whatever but i think the intimacy of one person talking to another human being if the conversation gets interesting, which really only means for me, like if it's, as long as it's candid, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, or it is usually interesting. I feel like that experience is in many ways similar to a literary experience in that it offers access to the minds of other human beings in right. a, um, involved way. Right. And I don't think, I can't think, I mean, Literature obviously does it really uh, elegantly, mm-hmm. you know, especially when, when it's done well. And that's why I think books have such staying power because there's no other object of technology right. that can match them yeah. in providing that access. But because 
you know, most people, I think, listen through headphones or earbuds or whatever. That heightens the level of intimacy. Yeah. And it also heightens the level of concentration. Right. So just like with books, you have to look at the page. Hopefully, if you're reading on a, you know, a printed book in particular, yeah. you know, it's kind of the slow food. It sort of enforces a certain level of concentration on you that's great yeah. uh, and feels good after the fact. And I think with, um, you know, radio or podcasts, I think one of the reasons why they're so popular is that they offer um, a similar kind of concentration to a degree, though you mm -hmm. can multitask well, you know. Right. Um, but they also offer that access to other consciousnesses. And I think that that can soothe people, make them feel less alone. And I think that it will... Um, you know, sometimes serve as like a proxy for what would otherwise be a social life. Right. <laughs> you know, you feel a little bit like, like if you're in your house alone or, you know, you're yeah. in your car, you're on your way to work. It's just like, it's nice to have company. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love the, the connection between podcasts and interviews and books because it is, I mean, that's, that must be why podcasts are so popular because people are looking for that connection to another consciousness. I mean, uh, I've been thinking lately that it's easier for me to, to read a book than it is to watch television or to watch a film. Cause I find myself losing interest cause it feels a little more passive to be watching a TV show. Whereas when I'm, and I always read, um, printed books, I just feel more engaged. Like there's this sensation, there's a tactile sensation, but then it just holds my attention a lot more because I feel like I'm, uh, participating. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. Yeah. I mean, that's it. I mean, especially like for me, it's gotta be the right book. I'm not a person, unfortunately, who has the ability to kind of read any old book and just like get into it. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I put a lot of books down and I got to find the one, if I find one that I'm just completely obsessed with though, there's nothing better. Yeah. Yeah. And also with the interview, uh, angle the connection with it's almost like um improvisation over time like the interview takes on this life of its own and it has those candid moments where these two consciousnesses can kind of crest together and create something that is totally unique and wouldn't happen uh individually it feels similar to a book where you're you're putting yourself into the book as well. And there's this collaboration. Yeah. I told, I couldn't yeah. agree more. And like, I just read, um, and really enjoyed the Marina Abramovich, um, memoir. It's called walk through walls. Mm -hmm. It was recommended to me by, um, my buddy, Ben Laurie. And, uh, you know, I, it sounds like kind of precious. So, you know, I have to say that so that people don't like, you know, their eyes don't like roll out <laughs> of their head when they hear this. But like, I find having read her book and, you know, if you don't know who Marina Abramovich is, she's this like world renowned performance artist who does all these like incredible performance pieces that involve among other things like, you know, risk to risk of bodily injury, incredible endurance, et cetera, et cetera, but just very fascinating person. And like a really uh, fun memoir. But uh, I think that there is an element of performance art in what I do when I think about it. And, and in terms of why I enjoy it, I also think that it is an extension of um, my interest in meditation. Hmm. Uh, it's connected to that because in order to 
have a good conversation, you have to be paying careful attention and yeah. you have to be listening. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know. I, the point that I'm trying to make is that in reading Marina's book, it made me understand why I like this uh, a little bit better. It made me understand it better. Mm-hmm. Does that make any sense? Yeah. And like conversation is performance art, like just improv, like somebody you don't know, complete strangers come to my house. Right. I'm usually like half prepared, you know? Um, and I chose Yeah. But I, (laughs) he didn't even dress. (laughs) No, I'm not. I'm just like in my sweats. But I think that, um, part of it is, uh, and I don't mean to ramble on and on about this, uh, you know, uh, why I do this, but I think it's interesting. And, uh, I think that if you too, if you prepare too much, it ruins it. Yeah. Who, whoever has a good conversation that you get like all scripted for. Right. That's a nightmare. If you, yeah. If you had several points you were trying to make, Ugh. like I wouldn't be able to find a way in. No. And yeah, I, I love what you mentioned about it. Uh, meditation as well. Like it can feel meditative because the conversation is kind of teaching you how to, uh, respond because each one's going to be different. And I mean, the number of people that you talk to and the, the range of, uh, subject matter and styles of talking, many of them much more eloquent than me, um, your ability to respond in real time and kind of be open and listen to it and like shape it, but let it be, that feels very meditative. It feels just like, um, like writing a book or whatever sort of art form that you make, the the artwork always teaches you how to create it. You just got to be open, and it's just like a conversation where, you know, you kind of let it let it wash over you and figure out how to kind of push it along. Yeah, and like like yeah, deal with it on its own terms. I uh, I read the other day I was reading and something on you know it's always on my my computer screen and. Mm. I like bumped into this quote where it was like meditation is uh, a way to be narcissistic without hurting anyone, <laughs> which I laughed at. I'm like, Oh, is that what I've been doing? Am I just so focused on myself that I'm like sitting on a cushion, like just, you know, getting yeah. into my, I don't know. Yeah. There's always a counterpoint to everything. Yeah. I think I'm doing it and it's like some sort of benign, healthy thing to do, but maybe I'm just spending too much time on me. Right. I don't yeah, know. You're just ignoring all of your obligations. My kids just... are like crying outside. <laughs> Wish dad would but play with me. But you're attaining <laughs> eternal enlightenment and I'm, inner peace. I'm and... trying to stay patient. Yeah. I don't know. I just think there's merit in sitting down and being quiet. Yeah. That's what I think. Yeah. It's not any more complicated than that. Yeah. And being still. Yeah. You know, which I guess is implied by sitting down, but you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm just going to try to be still for a moment and (laughs) gather my thoughts. But, I mean, I always say, and this feels like too easy of a connection, that writing feels meditative to me. Sure. It still feels like a a little more pointed than meditation can be because aren't you just really letting yourself go and trying not to, uh, I guess, create or... uh, disturb the universe in any way i mean it's my like my version of meditation is such a shit show like my brain is uh jabbering constantly there are little pockets of serenity or quiet Mm -hmm. like you know but i just notice it yeah like i see that i'm like oh wow i'm you know you just see the batshit nature of your own mind yeah and uh i don't like fight it 
you know, I don't think you're supposed to fight it. Yeah. And then I guess maybe over time, the pockets of serenity and quiet grow like incrementally. Right. You know, and you know, it's like sort of like when you're a kid and you're measuring your growth on the wall. Right. And it doesn't feel like you're growing, but then you look up six months and you know, yeah. hopefully that like, hopefully it's like that, yeah. that like the, the benefits that accrue over time, right. You know, will be large if you stick with it. That's yeah. sort of like my wager, but I don't know. It feels good. I like it. And I yeah. like, I guess I'm of the nature where I like to have like something to do yeah, and like something to do every day as like yeah. a discipline. Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely the same way. I think, uh, routine and rhythm are very helpful for me, whether it's something creative or, um, like maybe two or three years ago, I started really getting into running and, that again is also meditative for sure. me, but also that uh, ability to measure how far you've come. I mean, literally with running, you can measure how far you've how far you've run, but just that incremental, like seeing the difference in how much I can run today versus three years ago, like that. Were you like running like mini marathons and stuff? I'm not that good. Oh. Uh, just. <laughs> Uh, actually let's forget I mentioned running at all. <laughs> I haven't come that far. Uh, no, but like, you know, a distance of, you know, a couple of miles versus, you know, a mile three years ago. That, how, how, uh, how often are you running? Uh, probably like once or twice a week. Oh, okay. So that's, that's not that crazy. Yeah. It's, I think it's enough to, now this is the inverse of when I was trying to learn music. It's enough for me to see that I can get good at this and I'll keep doing it. Yeah. Whereas with the guitar, it was, I'm good enough to realize how this will never happen for me. Um, and maybe part of that is the, the joy of being an amateur and not being good at something allows you to appreciate, uh, when someone is good at it or, um, the possibility of being good at it. Uh, but for me, it's, it's just enough to kind of, uh, get away from the jabbering of my mind. Yes. Yeah. It, I mean, it definitely takes some time. Like you have to get into it and then it becomes meditative and you can get into a trance. And if you um, get like, it's like you get tired enough that your brain, like t physically tired enough that eventually your brain starts to slow down a little bit. Yeah. You can't be like in full on jabber mode yeah. while your like body shutting down <laughs> from fatigue. Yeah. And then I think too, with running, I, you know, I'm not, I, my body doesn't respond well to running. Um, I'm a hiker, but like I have run before and I've, you do break through at yeah. a certain point, you like break through some sort of wall or yeah. level of fatigue. And then you get into that trance or whatever. Yeah. And you're kind of just thinking about, your breathing, the rhythm and all that. And uh, it's definitely great. Like, I don't know, um, if I'm like thinking of lines or thinking about writing when I'm doing it, just because I am so in my body in that moment. Do you like, just you run on a treadmill? Are you around Nashville? Like, uh, oh, I gotta be outside to run. I can't do treadmills. I think yeah, it's like you're, depressing. you're losing something. Yeah. And usually there's like screens around and Again, people are looking at their phones while they're like on the elliptical. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. or it's like you know, 
I get it if like weather is a, a is a factor. Like if it's freezing cold and like blizzarding or it's pouring rain or something, fine. Like go to the gym and run on the treadmill. Yeah. But like driving across town to the gym. Yeah. To then go run on a treadmill inside. Yeah. Like what are you fucking doing? Yeah. It's What's depressing. The point? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. People need to rethink it. But yeah. Um. All right. So let's talk about you. Um. You know, writing and working on this book. Yeah. In the you know, and how you fit it into your life while you are you know at the Country Music Hall of Fame, and you know, is the running part of your ritual like creatively? Like, do you like run before you write, or run after you write, or? Yeah, um, I mean, I like the word ritual when it comes to process. Uh, for me, I've always um, had to write first thing in the morning, um, and if not every day, almost every day. Um, I mean, I've worked quite a few, uh, jobs that were required me to be at work at a certain time. So I'd always just wake up if it's like two or three hours before work, do the writing and that kind of makes the day okay for me. Like as long as I've gotten up and worked, even if it's just half an hour or, you know, Ideally, it would be more, but just being able to wake up first thing, get some lines down, uh, work on a sentence, work on the same sentence. Some lines of what? Uh, just. Uh, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's how I get up so early. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. You get the lines down. Who needs coffee? Yeah. I mean, it's lines and lanes. Like, once we get into bowling, <laughs> I think it's just something about the uh, the shape. It's not a boxy shape. It's a, <laughs> it's just a straightforward line. Um, having that first, like having that first thing in the morning, like that kind of creativity, I think I tend to lose it uh, throughout the day. Like, yeah, especially with the day job, that sucks all your energy. Yeah, out of your body. Yeah, I always feel like I'm closer to whatever it is, creativity, something on the other side. Like when I first wake up, like you're kind of in this dream state still. Um, and then drink a lot of coffee, too much coffee most of the time. Uh, but I'm on the tea. I don't drink coffee. Really? Yeah. I'm going to say I'm totally a tea person. Did you give up coffee? Were you? I mean, I didn't have to. I just, I just don't like it. I'm just like, it's just, oh. like, I don't like the taste of it. Yeah. And plus I feel like I can drink more tea with like less, right? like, like the volume. I can just yeah. drink tea all day long. I'm like, it's just tea. <laughs> <laughs> So it's it's just the quantity. Yeah, it's not, yeah, that's all it is. I don't, but like coffee, it's like this black tar. I'm just like, oh my god, it's too yeah. much. Yeah, I can see that. I'm not going to change my lifestyle, but you're not. I, can, yeah. I haven't persuaded you. <laughs> Are you in the pockets of big tea? No, no. I should be sponsored by tea companies. If you're listening, what, um, what tea would you? Or let's say, what tea do you regularly drink, and what would be an ideal sponsor? I mean, I like oolong tea. I, I drink a lot of Allegro organic teas. This is the other thing is I'm sort of, uh, I can get kind of obsessed about whether or not the food and drink that I eat is, is organic. I, yeah. I'm fucking terrified of pesticides. I, I tend to do the same thing. Like I, I don't mean to sound bougie. I'm, I'm like yeah. more like just paranoid. Like, yeah. I don't trust these companies. Yeah. And, uh, so especially with, uh, hot beverages that require like, you know, it's like coffee. You're like seeping these coffee grounds and like really hot water. And I'm yeah. imagining if there's chemicals on there that are getting leached 
right. into the water. I'm just like, I don't want any part of that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Does that sound? Yeah. So yeah. I drink like a leg That is row. a perfectly sane response. Yeah. Who wants yeah. that? Who wants that stuff in your body? So yeah. uh, just organic teas. Like I drink a lot of oolong tea. I drink uh, like this matcha green tea with like, like rice, like roasted rice. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, I mean, and then you're you kind of convincing me to, to switch over. Cause also the, the caffeine, it feels like it's a slower release. Like it's a gradual like coffee. Can... If I drink a lot of coffee, I feel cracked out. Yeah. Tea. It's just, it's not as strong of a dose, I think. Yeah. And you tend not to crash after like what half an hour or whatever it might be. Yerba mate. Though this is the problem. I Googled it once and it was like, it'll give you throat cancer. And so I was like, I go, you know, then I stop. Anything's yeah. bad for you if you yeah. Google it. Um, yeah, your throat will give you throat cancer. That's, <laughs> I mean, that's part of it. But uh, Yerba Mate, if you, if you really need energy, what I have found in the world of teas is that Yerba Mate, especially a strong dose, um, especially if you like French press it yeah. and you can really, you know, go right. for it, um, that will it gives you like a strange jolt. It's like a jolt, unlike coffee in that there's not that like sharp up and then that sharp down. Right. It's more of just like a steady lift off. Yeah. <laughs> right, this has been a great spot. We just got to decide who the, well, there's a company called Guayaki, which makes yerba mate and, uh, they should sponsor me. And then the yeah. leg, I think Allegro teas should sponsor me I'm giving uh, them free we'll, plugs right now. We'll just get the, the Foley of you <laughs> sipping the tea. <laughs> Um, so I want to ask you about being ritualized because you strike me yeah. as somebody who, you know, you're kind of methodical, you have a routine, you stick to it. Am I wrong? Yeah, no, that's right. So how does that affect you when it comes to your dealings with other human beings? Mm. Like, cause I feel like writers uh, and artists in general, like there's a level of selfishness, uh, selfishness that it can often require, mm. uh, to get work done or it can feel that way. Like, if I don't fight for this time, if yeah. I don't live like this, it's not going to get done. Yeah. And then yet, you know, my kids are like, come on, like, let's yeah. go, you know, play monster trucks. And I'm like, this is my time. And so right. you start to feel pulled. Like, do you find yourself like, uh, I don't know. Are you, I don't know. You're not married. So, no. um, I guess it's not as big of an issue. Maybe but... this is why. <laughs> 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 have fun in total isolation for the rest of your life. At least I have podcasts to listen to. <laughs> That's right. And, and my oolong tea, <laughs> uh, alone again, oolong again. Oolong, yeah. Um, it's, it's very like, oolong is very earthy. Yeah. I don't know if you, have you had it before? I think so. I, I had not had it until recently and I, I was like, damn, at first I didn't think I liked it. And then I sort of grew on me. I, I liked it Yeah. or I like it. Yeah. Um, well to, to your, uh, question, um, I think you definitely do make sacrifices when, when you're fighting for your time. Um, for me, I think it's just not sleeping as much, um, making some sacrifices as far as like being social. Like I, I know I'm going to feel better long-term if I am working on the writing. Like if I, if I do that, I know I'm also going to be more attentive and uh, caring as a person. I feel like a lot of um, artists and 
maybe I can't speak to this because I don't, I'm not raising a family right now, but, um, I do feel like a lot of artists will not write or not work on their art. And then they can, I feel like they might blame their situation. And then it seems like if you're able to get just that little bit of time, it then makes you, um, a little more present in all other aspects of your life. So, yeah, I definitely, um, I say no to things, uh, just because I know when I do say yes, after I've kind of done my work for the day or whatever it might be, I'm going to be there fully instead of like kind of out of it or thinking, oh, I should have, should have written today. It's same thing as like working out. It's like, if you don't work out, then you go out and you think, oh, I should have gone for a run. I should have went to the gym. Like, yeah, you'll lose a little bit of sleep, but you'll be there fully. Right. Yeah. And I, I find myself, cause I get up so early. I find myself, if I make too many social plans at night, it just sort of wrecks me. Like I'm yeah. tired by like nine thirty at night. Yeah. I get up at four o'clock in the morning a lot of yeah. times. Not, not like, and not on an alarm clock. I just wake yeah. up. Yeah. Have uh, you always been like that or? No. Yeah. No. It's after kids, kids yeah. and then getting older, Sam. Yeah. I don't know. I got to pee. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's all that tea you're drinking. That's right. <laughs> I'm, just, we got a cup I'm on an IV tea. drip actually while I sleep <laughs> with uh, chamomile. Um, just, but just, yeah, it's just tea in the system. <laughs> that's right. I want to keep a constant flow. Um, so what about writing uh, Chamorro? And what is the yeah. significance of the title? Why don't you tell people? Yeah. Um, so it's like a play on the mythical creature, the Chimera, and then also the car, the Camaro. So Is it Camaro? Is that how, how do you pronounce it? I've been calling it Camaro. Um, I think that's the way okay. to pronounce it. I was it. like Chimero. Uh, I, yeah. I didn't know. I mean, there... It's it's one of those things, kind of like my last name, where I kind of don't mind it being mispronounced. Like that's part of the um, the intrigue of it for me. That from like your first uh, impression of the book, you don't even know. Well, how do I pronounce this? Um, but I've been pronouncing it like the car, um, and. With this book, were you, were you asking kind of about the process with the book? Yeah, or? just like how long did it take you to write it? Yeah. Like what was the struggle? Yeah. Or was there a struggle? Did it just shoot out of you in a blaze of glory? Or uh, That's never happened to me before <laughs> in my life. Um, I think with all of my writing, it's very slow and methodical. Um, this one took about like three years. Um, like I started it in 2012 and I finished it in like 2014. Um, okay. And the, I think the starting point for this one was like a short story I'd written that kind of comprises the first 20 or so pages of the book. It's, um, like takes place at a new year's Eve party. And I was just thinking about the way, uh, time feels at a new year's Eve party. Um, and trying to extend that throughout the length of a book, like time dragging on and the feeling that something should be momentous. And it usually 
not feeling you know how or not is, turning out momentous. I've only done this like once or twice, but the only decent way to have a relative assurance that New Year's Eve isn't going to be bullshit is to go to a concert. Oh, that's a good move. Don't go to a party. Yeah. Go to a concert. Yeah. Then the band is there and there's like the, the energy of the room yeah. and they play old Lang Syne at midnight and you yeah. know, it balloons drop or whatever. Like that gives it a sense of celebration and don't go to times square and uh, freeze. No. Like that yeah. sort of shit drives me crazy, but yeah, go to a concert. Yeah. That's, I mean, that also manages your expectations. Like you kind of know what's going to happen. You know, that socially speaking, like everyone's kind of in it together. Whereas at a party, it feels almost uh, like who's going to do the countdown? Yeah. Who's in charge? It's kind of competitive, <laughs> you know, because right. everyone's like looking for something at a New Year's Eve party, but at a concert, everyone's kind of facing the same way. Yeah. And music is, band, a uni- music is a unifier. The other way, but yeah. Uh, especially if you like the band. Yeah. Go to a concert or, <laughs> or bowl like or band. go bowling. Yeah. And at midnight. Everybody. I mean, next year we're going to have the bowling league will be <laughs> finalized. And um, so it took you three years to write it. Yeah. And uh, like at any point, like were there points where you thought you were going to give up? Uh, I mean, I'm still thinking about giving up. <laughs> it's, uh, al- it's always there, isn't yeah, it? Burking. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'm giving up for me. Uh, I think a lot of my process feels like I'm being compelled. Like I, I feel like as long as I kind of chip away at it, then I've done my part. Um, and that's probably why routine is so important for me. Like I'm not, uh, the kind of writer that can sit down for eight hours and, you know, turn out this incredible short story or an essay in one sitting. Um, I think it's one of those things where you just kind of measure your progress. And for me, like for a while I was, uh, uh, writing down like however many words I wrote just so I can, you know, have this tangible evidence. Yeah. I think that's good. Yeah. Otherwise, how are you going to, like, how are you going to be accountable? I yeah. mean, whether it's the, you log the amount of hours you spent working yeah. or the word count. Otherwise it's, you know, it's too loose for me. I need to know, I need to have some kind of metric to measure how productive I've been. It's a, if it's, yeah. if you're treating it like it's work and yeah. something you're taking seriously. Yeah. And I think if you don't, you lose sight of the, the larger thing, the, you know, the book, like, um, the the physicality of like writing down however much you wrote or however long you worked for i think that's helpful any anything you can do to make it a little more physical um is a way to stick with it cuz then you kind of develop your your routine um whether it's you know for a while, like I was standing up and writing cause I felt like that's how um, I do it. Yeah. Like I just feel a little more in it. Like, uh, I feel like I'm writing rather than sitting down. I think you can kind of get distracted or, um, I mean, computers aren't helpful in no. this way cause and it just, pl- you got to find a way for 
your writing time not to be uh, similar to the other uh, things you might be using your computer for. So like, it's easy to switch over to social media if you're in the same exact position <laughs> that you're in when you're browsing social media. Um, so yeah, that, that kind of physicality. Um, That's why I never write in the fetal position. <laughs> Is that, I don't know. Is that how you check social media? I, yeah, I always get into, or I get any, into a crowd. Any sort of news is, uh, <laughs> I'm already going to start off here. So <laughs> rather than ending up here after I look at the news, I'm off yeah. social though. I've got a, I hired a social media director now. Oh, awesome. Who, yeah. So I'm, I'm no longer on Twitter. Uh, but I mean, the show is on Twitter. Yeah. I quit and then I felt bad because I feel like I have to promote the show. And yeah. It's hard to get off. It would know? have been great for me if uh we recorded this and then you told me oh, i'm not promoting you yeah, anymore no. good luck that would have been amusing <laughs> um well i uh, i have enjoyed meeting you and uh, yeah. i hope that uh you know you find like do you have an idea of what kind of career you want like how do you how do you i, I think there are some people who are like i just love to do this yeah. i'm happy to have my book in print you know, and whatever happens, happens. I've got this day job and this other like life and, you know, I'm sort of planning on that being how I pay my rent or whatever. But, right. um, or are you somebody who's like, I am going to be the next, you know, so-and-so. Right. Um, I think that answer has changed for me over the past 10 years. Um, I think initially I probably would have had higher aspirations, but now it's, I think it's just something that I have to do. So I don't know. It, it does feel good to have the book in print and to have it be out there for people if they're interested in it. But, um, I've realized that, I don't know. I'm, I'm not owed anything. Like you're not, you're not owed readers or an audience or anything like that. So it's, uh, it's something I'm always going to do in some form or another, but if it's able to speak to someone, then that's just, I mean, that's a, that's a great end result. Like being able to get a moment of shared consciousness with someone. Um, it's something I feel like we're always striving for. So it, it's like translating that moment of when you're writing and the, the line comes down onto the page and then just replicating that for someone else when they're reading. Like it's, you know, it's a cyclical thing that will have to go on. I think as yeah. long as this answer has gone on. <laughs> no, but I like what you said. I think it's, uh, it's nothing to like look down your nose at. Like that's very, yeah. that's a very cool connection yeah. to have. And anybody who takes the time to you know, to anybody who takes the time to enjoy anybody else's art, yeah. um, but in particular a book, I think, because it requires so much of you. Yeah. You know, we talked about the participatory nature of it and yeah. the length of time it takes to finish a book. Yeah. You know, you're asking a lot in, in a lot of ways of whoever your reader might be. And so when somebody kind of meets you halfway, um, that is, uh, that's something special, I think. Yeah. So yeah. I hope you find millions of them, right? <laughs> or at least, uh, you know, a few thousand here and there. Yeah. I mean, millions, I don't think there's that many in Nashville. So let's, 
hundreds of thousands. Hundreds. Let's hope it goes well there. I would, I would love at some point, I, I, maybe this exists, but like market research, I really do want to know what the English speaking world, not just the United States, but what is the English speaking world? Uh, what are the g- general, but relatively accurate numbers for what kind of market we have mm-hmm. for literary fiction and literary nonfiction? Do you think it's smaller than interest in bowling? <laughs> I probably, I mean, I it's think everybody's comparable. I mean, I don't know. Everybody's bold. I guess yeah. everybody's read or most people have read at this point, you know, right. in the developed world anyway, but it's like, I don't know. It's, I, I guess it's a question of how many, are we dealing with millions of people or are we dealing with like tens of thousands of people and everybody's trying to share sort of that same right. audience? I think it's millions. I'm going to yeah. be, I'm going to be optimistic in the worldwide English speaking human population. I mean, what is there? 7 billion people on the planet right now? Yeah. There's gotta be at least like 5 million people out there yeah. who are like really interested in this. Maybe, and, maybe significantly more. And there's ones that haven't even been born yet. That's I right. We got to think about the future. Well, I'm trying to get my kids to read paper books. My yeah. daughter's into it. Um, I think we do need to make, we got to make readers, but I kind of feel, I don't know. I'm sort of, a. I wasn't as always, always as optimistic as I am now. Mm-hmm. I think I kind of got tricked by the whole ebook thing. I was like, Oh shit, here we go. Right. But I'm like, Oh man, I was wrong. Like it's the, the, the print book is, it's sort of like, uh, I remember reading an interview with Tom Petty years ago and he was just like rock and roll is like a flawless design hmm. he's like it's never going to go away because it's always like it's sort of like oh rock is dead right the novel is dead you know yeah. you, you have these stupid arguments being made uh and of course we're sitting here today and the novel's still alive and so is yeah. rock and roll i think there is like a flawless architecture to both that you know th- look rock and roll might not be as central to the culture as it once was i think that a fair case can be made that it's right. moved away from the middle yeah. Uh, as other, you know, kinds of music have sort of come to the fore, but, um, it's not going anywhere. Yeah. There's going to always be people who want to make rock and roll music. There's always yeah. going to be people who want to write and read. Yeah. Right. That's what I'm banking on anyway. Anyway. Yeah. I mean, it's lasted quite a while. And again, I think it is just that it's that flawless, uh, architecture. That's it. As it were. Uh, well, it's nice to meet you, man. I, yeah, uh, really I congratulate you. you on the publication of your uh, book, Camaro, and I uh, wish you well. Uh, thank you so much. This was great. All right, everybody. That is Sam Faramond. His uh, debut novel is called Camaro, available from Dr. Dr. Press. Go get it. You can find him online. Uh, I don't know where. I can't see a website. I don't see Twitter. I don't know what he's doing. I, I think he blogs at Medium. And uh, he writes for a few other online publications. You can find him, but I don't think he's on social or that he has a website that I know of. Sam Faramond, the novel One More Time is called Camaro. Go get it. Thank you to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music at the top of the interview. If you would like to support this program, if you're a, a regular listener and you like what you hear, you can support the show at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you would like to write to me, my uh, email address is letters at otherppl.com. 
don't forget that you can follow the show on uh, Twitter at OtherPPL and on Instagram at OtherPPL.podcast. <laughs> Any questions about my social media, just to refer all of those to Joseph Grantham, my social media director. So, uh, let me see here. What do I got next? Who's coming up next week? Uh, oh. Yeah. I've got, uh, Monica Woods. Literary agent Monica Woods is my guest next week. That's exciting. I haven't had a literary agent on the program in a while. So she will be answering a lot of, uh, like, agenty questions. You know what I'm saying? And more. But we'll get to hear from Monica Woods next Wednesday. The podcast will continue uh, unabated amidst this outbreak. So uh, hang in there. I know earlier at the top of the show in the monologue I said, take care of your friends and neighbors and don't go outside. I'm sorry.